Hello and welcome back, listener. You are listening to My Surrogacy Journey, the podcast, where we're taking you on a journey of education and storytelling. I am Michael, one of your hosts. And I'm Wes. Hello. We're excited to be back in the studio producing this podcast. The season one was such a valuable piece of work and we had to just give you more. And guess what, Wes? We have only got a new sponsor for season two. Really? Yes. Who do you think it is? Well, I know it is actually. I'm going to tell the listeners. Go on then. So, Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre was established in 1989 with an outstanding track record and have created over 7,000 babies as a result of their care over the last 34 years. They've also equally supported the treatment of LGBTQ plus people through their active sperm donation, egg donation and surrogacy programmes. In addition, they also offer fertility treatments such as IUI, IVF, ICSI and PICSI and much, much more. For this episode, me and Michael are together and we're talking to a super important part of the surrogacy puzzle. We're talking about CAFCAS and the parental order route and also how this is likely to change in the final draft bill delivered in March 2023. We're joined by Susie Blamir and she is Head of Practice for the National Improvement Service with CAFCAS. She's also from the Midlands so I'm extra excited to have her with us in the studio today. We're going to be talking to her about the welfare of the child assessment in particular. So Susie, it is amazing to have you in the studio with us today and we're really, really pleased to help the listener understand the whole process from end to end, the highs, the lows, all of the myth busting around the parental order process and the process that CAFCAS provide as part of that process. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for being here today. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me with you today. Oh, thank you. And we're here to talk about all of the really important things that our listeners sometimes have quite a bit of anxiety about. Mm-hmm. I hear lots of stories about people really not understanding the process or being quite frightened of the process. So really the idea of the podcast today is to help people better understand it, hear it from the horse's mouth as such, get a real insight into how Kafkas operate, what their primary role is within the whole process. But also just to hear the human side of Kafkas, because I remember the Kafkas officer, we had the same office for both of our journeys, and she came to our house. She was really lovely. She just really put us at ease. And I think, if anything, what I'm hoping the listener gets out of the episode today is that this is part of the process. We're all human. And Kafkas and everyone involved in that process are here just to make sure that everyone is taken care of, the welfare of the child is assessed. And there's no concerns and that everyone can move forward to having, you know, full legal parentage at the end of the process. Absolutely. Glad to hear you had a really nice um, process when you worked with us. That's good to hear. I can remember the lady's face now. She was really, she was really lovely. She sat in the kitchen and we were at the island, weren't we? Yeah, exactly Yeah, I remember it. Because I remember how nervous we both were thinking... What are they going to want to see? They're going to want to inspect the home, and you just have all of these like preconceptions of of what what it all involves. Because you hear welfare of the child, and you it's a big deal. You're in this position of vulnerability already, and you're just all over the place, aren't you? 
I remember like, Michael, get the hoover out. Let's clean up. I don't want a dirty house. I don't want him thinking that we're, we're, we're riffy. Let's, <laughs> let's get everything clean. We're not, and, by the way. We're yeah. not. We're not. You might need to explain riffy for non-Midlanders. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you are listening, you're not from the West Midlands. Riffy just means you need to hoover your house a little bit better. Yeah, and dust, maybe dust. The skating boards. But I was just really conscious about how we'd be perceived. We, we looked smart. You know, I, all of these things that go through your mind because you're trying to portray this vision yeah. of who you are and who you want them to see i mean you, you you really don't have anything to worry about but it's just your own self-conscious and your anxiety around this yeah. whole process i think do you often see that uh susie with with other intended parents or do some of the other kafka's officers comment on things like that yes um in the role i'm in now i don't do the parental orders myself anymore i'm kafka's peer practice specialist in modern families um, which encompasses surrogacy so in that role i talk to lots and lots of family court advisors who are acting as parental order reporters and going out to see people. Um, I also did that for, oh, about nine years myself before okay. um, I was in my current role. So I've kind of been on both sides of it. And it's something that I remember really well. And when I talk to people, I hear the same from them, that people are often really, really anxious mm-hmm. and when they get that call from us or when, when we knock on their door. Because it's, it's the last bit of the jigsaw. It's the last thing that they need. Often after going through quite a sometimes challenging, sometimes traumatic process that they've gone through before they get to the point of having their child through surrogacy. And you just want everything sorted. At the end, don't you? you want that piece of paper in your hand um, so that you know that child is yours in every sense of the word and is yours legally. So, mm-hmm. yes, people are often quite nervous. Um, when we first meet with them. So Susie, why don't you tell us and kind of give us a bit of an overview of uh, kind of the function that CAFCAS play and, and what the responsibilities of CAFCAS are? And who are, who are for, for, if anyone's listening, who doesn't understand what, what CAFCAS is? Just tell us a little bit more. Sure. So CAFCAS stands for the Children and Family Courts Advisory and Support Service. Mm-hmm. And we are there to represent the interests of children who are involved in family proceedings lots of different types of family proceedings. Primarily, we represent the interests of children in private law proceedings. So that's usually around divorce or separation when parents can't agree about arrangements for their children. So that's what we call private law. And we also get involved in public law, which is where children's services have concerns about a child or children um, and go to court because they're concerned about the children. So people will know about that as care proceedings. Um, We also work in adoption. um, And another part of the work that we do um, is around parental orders. And we are there to make sure that the children's welfare is safeguarded and that the decisions that the family court make for them are the best they possibly can be. Mm -hmm. And where children are older, particularly, we make sure that their voices are heard. We talk to them, listen to them about what they want, what they feel about things and make sure the court finds out their perspectives so that can be factored into the decision making. So that's what we do. And we work with around 140,000 children across England every year. So it's a broad spectrum of of cases then. You know, everything gets captured and seen by the sounds of it. Yes, any children that are involved in a family court matter in any way are likely to be worked with by an officer from Kafka. So yeah, we work with a huge amount of children every year and try to make sure that their interests are safeguarded mm-hmm. and that they're listened to. Amazing. And when you just answered that question and you didn't speak about Scotland, is there a, is there a, a difference in the process in Scotland? Because we, we work with 
uh, Scottish intended parents and Scottish surrogate. So tell us, Susie, about the, the, the variations then that apply under Scottish law. In Scotland, it is slightly different. They don't have CAFCAS. Um, when you apply to the court in Scotland, they appoint um, someone called a curator ad litem to interview the intended parents and also speak to the surrogate and write a report for the court saying whether or not a parental order should be made. So interestingly, Scotland is within the scope of the Law Commission recommendations. You know, the recommendations for the new law will be England and Wales and Scotland. Okay, so let's look at the process then for IPs and and for surrogates. What can people expect from that process? Because it's often met with people that are anxious and nervous. Talk us through that process. So after the intended parent or parents has made that application to court, we sometimes get involved at slightly different stages depending on what level of court the matter's in, what part of the country people come from. But you make that application to court. Sometimes there is a directions hearing quite early on where the court will direct the appointment of a parental order reporter. Sometimes they will direct the appointment of that parental order reporter before the first directions hearing it varies slightly so at some point sort of soonish after people have made their application to court they're going to hear from the family court advisor who's been appointed as their parental order reporter and the job of the parental order reporter is twofold generally to make sure that the person or the couple applying um, is legally entitled to have a parental order so making sure that all those criteria from the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act 2008 are fulfilled. We tend to call them the Section 54 criteria. So that's around them both being over 18, that one at least of them is genetically related to the child. If it's a domestic matter, that only reasonable expenses have exchanged hands, those kind of things. So Mm -hmm. the first bit is a kind of tick box, making sure that those people are legally entitled to have a parental order. The second and probably the key thing from our point of view is around the child's welfare, making sure that it is in the child or the children's best interest for that parental order to be made. Mm -hmm. The parental order reporter will make contact um, with the applicant or applicants um, and will almost always come and see them at home. The only exception to that would be very occasionally if people are currently living overseas but domiciled in the UK, we might see them when they bring the children back to the UK. But in the vast majority of cases, we just come and see people at home. One of the Section 54 criteria is that the child has his or her home with the applicant. So the obvious way to make sure the child does actually live with you is to come and see you at home and check there's baby paraphernalia everywhere, which there invariably is. Um, So we will come out and talk to you, go through, often start by just getting a little bit of background about the person or the person's journey to surrogacy, Mm -hmm. how they got to this point, why they decided surrogacy was the best thing for their family. Then talk a bit specifically about this surrogacy journey that has led to this child being born. And then suppose start to look at those section 54 criteria. It's really helpful if people have documentation and things recorded so that it just makes it easy to kind of demonstrate around expenses or if people have used a clinic, if you have a letter or report outlining treatment, it just helps if you have that there. And then really, really importantly, um, we'll want to talk to you about the child's welfare, both now and in the future. Some of that will be addressed by looking at, if, see if there's any kind of safeguarding issues by doing checks with 
children's services and with the police. Um, but the main thing that we kind of tend to talk to people in some detail about is about talking to the children, both about them having been born through surrogacy and also if an egg or a sperm donor has been used in the process, how they will then talk to the child about the donor as well. So those are the kind of key things. And we will come out probably once, talk to you about those things. Um, if it's a domestic surrogacy, the parental order reporter or a colleague if geographically it makes more sense, we'll also take consent from the surrogate. We'll go out to see the surrogate, talk to them, make sure that they fully understand what they're consenting to and ask them to sign the relevant form. So that broadly is the kind of process that people should expect. And when all that's done, we write a report for the court, um, which is usually, the court usually directs that it's shared with the applicants um, so that they can see a copy of it before it goes to court. I think I remember seeing ours actually. I did, yeah, I, I do. do. I do remember seeing it. It's quite interesting hearing the stages, I guess, and then just just fully appreciating the responsibility of all of that. You know, yes, there's the first part, all of those tick box tasks, and then there's the there's the real serious stuff of checking all of the the obvious risks potentially. But interesting hearing it broken down. But as a segue in there, Michael, so Susie, talk to us about some of the checks that take place. Now, I remember talking to some an intended parent and he was talking about how he was arrested or cautioned when he was 16 for getting really drunk and stealing a beer off the bar. He was in his late That's 30s well, and really, really quite concerned that that previous misdemeanor or caution was going to absolutely have an impact on the future of a parental order. I mean, they they went at a point where they had had a child yet, but they were planning their surrogacy journey. So talk to us a little bit about some of the things that would impact the ability to get a parental order. Okay, so when we do those checks with um, local authority children's services and with the police, we're looking for the things that we would be worried about are offences against children, offences of violence, potentially offences which suggest a pattern of drug or alcohol misuse. So we're thinking real safeguarding concerns. Certainly someone having done something ill-advised once years ago when they were young <laughs> would not be a problem at all. It's really just about making sure when we're recommending what is a life-changing order for that child, who is it's going to say who who becomes their legal parents, where they're highly likely going to live for the rest of their childhood and beyond, we need to make absolutely sure that we're not recommending that order is made to someone where there is an obvious safeguarding risk. What is really positive about the new pathway that is proposed is that those checks will happen much earlier mm -hmm. in the process. As it is at the moment, the checks are only done after the baby is born and usually living with the intended parents. So that would be a much more sensible way around. And for it to be done. And my surrogacy journey as an organisation, we currently do a DBS checks for both intended parents and for surrogates preconception. So that's just part of our process. And often some of the clinics will recommend or will require uh, DBS checks or criminal records checks to be done uh, preconception. Now, for me, I'm, I think that's a, a great process because it is about identifying it. And if there is anything that sits on anyone's record, uh, from the past that we're aware of it at a phase where we can then give people the, the advice that they need to know whether that's going to impact their journey or not. I suppose a lot of people 
do still get worried about if they have a criminal conviction. What would your advice be that you should always, you know, try and talk to people if you're going through an organisation, speak to a lawyer about if you do have concerns whether any previous spent or unspent convictions are going to impact it, would you? Would your recommendations be that speak to people about it as early as possible? Absolutely. Obviously, lots of people choose to go through their surrogacy journeys with the help of an organisation. Um, if you're part of one of the surrogacy organisations talk to them if you have a lawyer acting for you discuss it with them just to get a feel of whether that's something that's likely to be an issue clearly our focus has always got to be on the welfare of the child but it would only be the much more serious end of convictions which suggests there might be a safeguarding risk to the child that we would become worried about what type of action would CAFCAS take if there was a serious issue that people hadn't disclosed what potential impact could that have on on the child or the potential order that the court might be recommending it varies generally when we become involved with families the family court advisor who's one of our um, experienced social workers is appointed as a parental order reporter if there's any difficulty or any complexities that come up during the process it's likely that the parental order reporter would take it back to court and they would be appointed as guardian for the child technically we we call that the child would be joined as party to the proceedings um, and so the parental order reporter would become their guardian the, the child would then have a solicitor in their own right um, to speak on their behalf um, so it would become a slightly different process and um, that is something that would be likely to happen if there were complexities or kind of questions about whether the parental order should be made potentially as well if if it became apparent to us that a child was living with somebody where the dbs check indicated that the person had a conviction which was really, really concerning, we might make a referral to the local authority and the local authority might become involved. I suppose at the most extreme end of that, then there could be care proceedings if there were real concerns about the child um, in the care of the applicants. I would want to stress, though, that that's an incredibly rare occurrence. Um, the vast majority of people who approach surrogacy do so genuinely wanting to have a child and look after the child well they're usually well prepared many of them have gone through surrogacy organizations and have thought everything through so any matters where there are real difficulties are a tiny minority um, of the surrogacy matters that that we see sure we touched on a moment ago uh, about the new pathway to legal parenthood yes and what that will mean for intended parents and surrogates and ultimately the, the children. And it's it's a little bit different to how things are currently. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit more about, I guess, the involvement of CAFCAS in the proposed pathway to legal parenthood, so the new pathway. So under the proposed new pathway, if it becomes law in the current form, then CAFCAS will not be involved in a proportion, presumably the majority of what we call domestic surrogacy, so where it's all taken place um, within the UK. The new pathway will provide for people to kind of do what CAFCAS does now, but earlier in the process before the child is conceived. So those checks, the child welfare assessment, the thinking about implications, all that work that CAFCAS currently do after the child is born will take place preconception and then the intended parents will be legal parents from birth um, subject to the surrogate's right to object within a prescribed time but they will still be legal parents from birth as I understand under the final proposals. So CAFCAS won't be involved in most of those matters. The instances where CAFCAS would still be involved would be where the surrogate does 
change her mind um, at some point during the pregnancy or after the birth within those six weeks. CAFCAS would become involved at that point. We would also potentially be involved if people have not gone through the new pathway for whatever reason and haven't had all those checks done prior to conception. And under the proposals, we would also be involved with international surrogacies. So if people have had a child through a surrogate overseas and bring them back to England and Wales, then we we would be involved um, at that point as well because they won't fall under the new pathway. Let's talk about timescale for a little bit because I think one of the questions that comes up a lot is, and I think generally when we are talking to unintended parents right from the start of their journey, trying to get them to understand and have realistic expectations about the timescales involved in surrogacy at each stage of the journey is really important. But let's talk about what the timescales are from the point of where they submit the uh, parental order application. So, you know, we did ours at uh, six weeks and one day because that's when you could do it and we instructed our solicitor to do it. What does that general time frame look like, Susie? You know, if someone is wanting to understand that, how long does it take to the point of where they've got, they've, they've, they've had the hearing, they've had their day in court with their baby, uh, and we'll come back on to that in a second. And then to the point of where their, you know, their parental rights are then recognized legally and they you know they, they've done that bit and it's like just get on with your life type thing there isn't one set time frame particularly because it depends on what level of court you're applying to where in the country you are and CAFCAS's time scales for producing the reports vary slightly depending on where you are in the country um as a kind of rough ballpark figure when you make that application, potentially at six weeks and one day, um, need to remember to do it before six months as well. After you make that application, usually around 12 weeks for CAFCAS to produce the report. So that would be the time to go from kind of making the application and us, well, us being appointed, shall we say, us being appointed to the report. And the final hearing is usually scheduled pretty soon after the final report is available. So it's difficult to be specific. That was kind of our timings with our, our experience. I think we were we had our parental order granted. I think that the kids were about five months old when it when it came through. So we were kind of in that time frame. So that sounds about right. Yeah, I am hearing from some in, intended parents who are like friends, for instance, London based, that it's still taking up to about nine months. But like you say, it does vary on the case and the the courts that you're you're applying to and how long that process takes. It does. There's general delays in family courts across the country. So unfortunately, parental orders are impacted um, by the delays more generally, and it Mm -hmm. can take longer than that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about our day in court, because I think, you know, when people understand the process of the baby's been born, PO applications being submitted, and then the process which you've just so eloquently described, Susie, it, it goes through. And then one of the, the more final elements is, is that day in court. And I remember being really quite petrified uh we uh, with Tallulah we didn't take Tallulah with us yeah, from... we, were, we were like do we re- you know is 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 a court the, a place for kids and we just didn't know what to to expect yeah, no so one had prepped us we didn't and we also contemplated getting a barrister uh to, no actually let me rewind that on with Tallulah we took our solicitor our lawyer with us Bev she was in court with Tallulah with us and because we built a relationship it wasn't that we needed her there but uh, she was there. Well, she wanted to be there as she well. She wanted she? to be there. She absolutely did. And and you know, 
I remember the walking into the court and them saying, where's Tallulah? I think they were really disappointed. They'd got her a teddy. They got her a card. It was just such a, it was a really emotional day, actually. Yeah. And, you know, to hear the, the things they were saying. And I always remember the magistrate saying is that we spend 99% of our time taking parental responsibility where it's a pleasure to give it. And I just remember being really emotional yeah. uh, at that at that point. And... And then the, the the judge wanting to have a photograph with us and and give us give this teddy it was just really what what we weren't expecting, but just such a lovely end to that that journey. Yeah. And then of course we applied for all of the paperwork to come through post. But then I remember even with having that experience with Tallulah for our first one, when we did the application for due, going to the same court, we then contemplated getting a barrister. We decided not to. But it was all again. It was just a pleasure, and we took both the kids. That yeah, time. we took them that because it was in COVID, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, but I remember it being a really lovely experience, and I get I often speak to a lot of intended parents who are really quite anxious about the uh, day in court and and everything that brings. And I always try and reassure people that it was actually a really lovely, lovely day. And but for some people, it's probably their first time in court as well. It was, you know, it was I've, certainly mine. I've done jury service, but I hadn't really, you know, seen that format. And you. You just don't know what to expect. What do people say to you or the people at Kafkas? What's the general feeling like? How do people feel? I think you're right. It's 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 something that can really create anxiety for people because most people don't go to court on a regular basis. So it sounds a bit scary and it sounds like you might need some help. Um, lots and lots of people navigate the parental order process without any legal representation it's absolutely fine to do that if that's what you choose to do your parental order reporter will do their best to help you kind of explain any directions of the court to you absolutely plenty of people also use solicitors it sometimes can help to have someone who's familiar with the process and familiar with that environment to help in terms of that final hearing yes I've often been asked by people kind of how does it work do we bring the children do we not bring the children I would advise people if they're not sure, maybe just to ring the court and ask kind of how they're going to do it. I've seen courts do it in some different ways. Some courts are quite organised and I've seen teddies for the children, flowers for the intended parents, judges wanting to have their pictures, you know, offering to have their pictures taken and they do it as a lovely celebration hearing. Other courts I'm aware of do an administrative final hearing and then will invite the intended parents and the child back for a kind of photo opportunity celebratory hearing at a later stage courts do it in slightly different ways but yeah it's a lovely lovely experience it's really really lovely and can be quite emotional as the print lord reporter as well to see somebody that you've built that relationship with getting what they need so that they can secure their family so yeah it's a really really lovely occasion um, and i hope not an occasion that people will be unduly worried about because it should be a really special day um, for the intended parents and their family Mm-hmm. I often feel like it's the end of, for some people, a really, really long journey. Yeah. And particularly for some of our heterosexual members who have experienced, you know, some real, some real loss and have been on such a, an emotional fertility journey. It might be through cancer. It might be through all, all, all different factors, but it's, it's a really nice ending to it because it gives everyone that reassurance and that confidence and the, the final stage that they've all kind of been trying to get to and I also think that for us for uh, same-sex couples you know some of the things that come out of of not having parental responsibility what can be a long period of time you know you, you could be talking nine months now 
Michael and I experienced when we had to take one of our children to the hospital and we had to present as, as same-sex parents, you are constantly then asked whether you have parental responsibility. And at that yeah. stage, you don't. You don't have parental responsibility. So you have to kind of work with your surrogate and have a mechanism in place so that if you, you do ever have to present without parental responsibility, how are you going to handle it? Because often... The healthcare professionals that you're dealing with in that in those settings, they don't necessarily know how to deal with it as well. So it's it's a situation that I think our advice would be is you know that you're gonna have this prolonged period where you don't have PR. So how are you going to put a mechanism in place so that if anything does happen, you can you can manage it in the most effective way? And I think that's how we try to support our intended parents in, in getting that mechanism in place with their surrogates. Have you experienced anything like that, Susie? Or have you any of your colleagues uh, seen or heard of anything like that? I'm certainly aware of matters over the years where children have been born and have been very unwell at birth um, and then the surrogate has not been available to provide consent. You're left with a situation where you've got a very poorly baby, intended parents who are desperately worried about their child but don't technically have any any say in any treatment or any plans for the child. So the system as it currently is leaves intended parents but most importantly children in a really really vulnerable situation where their kind of actual parents who are doing all the day-to-day parenting aren't able to make the best and appropriate decisions for them hopefully that will be solved under the new pathway where people will have legal parenthood from from birth um this is kind of same subject but just something that I've just thought about. No hard questions, please. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but don't worry. We'll see how this one goes. In in hospital, when you are waiting to be discharged, um, the surrogate can do some of the pre-medical consents with the midwives. Would those consents be valid should the child go to hospital with the with its in, with its parents? And they can't get hold of the surrogate to give consent for a medication or for a procedure. But all of the medical consents were done at point of discharge. Does that count in any way? Do you know? Would it kind of see you through? Does it? Yeah. Will it? Will it? Yeah, exactly. Consent for the future as well. Yeah. I think that's possibly a question you will need to pose to one of your lawyers that you were talking to okay. later in the um, later in the series. But I imagine if you have signed consent from your surrogate that you can consent in an ongoing way it would be like a child on a school trip kind of people can act in loco parentis if they have the consent of the person with parental responsibility but like you say in hospitals and other settings people don't come across surrogacy that often and sometimes people just get a bit worried and confused about what's happening and who the parents are and who has parental responsibility so anything that can be remedied in law to make that easier and um, for everyone and for the children will definitely be welcomed mm-hmm. agreed Susie I think we're coming to a close of the podcast so it's been really interesting really interesting do you have pieces of advice that you would give to surrogates or you know intended parents that are listening to this podcast about trying to make the whole process less anxiety driven or less less worrisome Kind of being anxious around the process is completely understandable. But just know, um, I suppose, that your parental order reporter is there to try to help you get what you need to secure your child's future um, with you. 
So please don't be kind of unduly worried. Kafka's officers are all experienced social workers um, who are used to talking to people. They will listen to you, build up that relationship with you and get the information they need to try and make sure that you get what you need for your child. The only other thing that I would add in terms of child welfare, when I and when my colleagues have discussions with people about telling their children about what's happened, you know, the the story of their birth, people are usually absolutely on it when it comes to explaining the surrogacy part of it and will have photo books, life story books, everything often still have contact with the surrogate. The bit that people often don't give as much thought to is gamete donors, that if a gamete donor is being used, how they're going to explain that to children. And people find that a little bit trickier. And in my experience, that's often the bit people are most taken aback by or find it hardest to respond to. Uh They'll tell you quite happily what they're going to tell the child about the surrogacy, um, but haven't maybe given that thought to what they're going to explain about, say, an egg donor. And it's really, really important for the child's identity that they do grow up with that understanding. You know, they need to know both about their gestational origins and their genetic origins. So just give some thought about how they will do that in a kind of child-friendly way um, as the child grows up. And often give us an example, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively easy to explain to young children, just say, two kind women helped us have you. That's it. And you give more detail as they get older. So that would be my kind of top tip for those who've used um, donor gametes to make sure they've given that a little bit of thought as well. I love that. And Um, in the true sense of the welfare of the child, that is exactly what they need to be thinking about. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And and if and if you are listening, then we you'll know in a in a in a later episode we're also talking to the Donor Conception Network as well. So Fantastic. we uh, are huge advocates of exactly what you've just said. I like the way you separate that there, gestational origin and also um the origin of, of, of where their where their gametes were from. So I love it. Thank you so much. This it was a really uh, interesting I mean, obviously as as you know, doing what we do, we we understand the process, but not everyone out there does. And it's sometimes knowing the process, it's difficult to ask the right questions so that we can articulate and make sure the listener has a full holistic view of the process. So thank you, Susie. I think you articulated all of that really well. And I learned something as well. Yeah. There's the, the, the bits that I was like, oh, I yeah. didn't really. I think you have a really calm voice. You do a really, have a really calm lovely voice. Lovely rhythm of being able to explain it. So I, I hope the listener appreciates that. Yes, I'm, sure I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're very welcome, Susie. Thank you. I love that. Um, See, Wes, we can even make the parental order process so fun. I hope you've enjoyed learning and listening. What was your favourite bit? Well, I really enjoyed one of the elements where Susie talked about the impact of donor eggs and how you, the child should be put first when talking about that yeah you know the uh, whole gestational and genetics conversation correct yeah love that don't forget if you need your podcast fix we're back every monday proudly sponsored by hearts and essex fertility center one of the top performing fertility clinics in the uk and has some of the best success rates in the east of england if you want to find out more about my surrogacy journey then please head over to our website which is mysurrogacyjourney.com or find us on instagram at official my surrogacy journey thanks for listening we have been your my surrogacy journey the podcast hosts goodbye see ya